This is from Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for, in, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God but might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we start this new year, I was been reflecting a little bit uh, just upon my life. And, and something that kind of happened this week brought me back to something we did as a family a lot. Um, when we went on family vacations, especially in California, we do a lot of driving. Uh, and... As a kid, you didn't really enjoy the driving all that much, and especially way back then, uh, you didn't have iPads or iPhones, you know, you had books, you just looked out the window. I think that was one of my dad's favorite sayings, you know, when we were bored. Well, look out the window, find something, you know, there was something, there was something. And, and we would go on these trips, and one of the things that my dad really enjoyed doing on these trips was seeing some of the things that you wouldn't normally see. And so we'd be driving on a road somewhere in California on the main road, and my dad will all of a sudden take a turn off of the main road. And when he took the turn off of the main road, we in the back seats of the car would ask the proverbial question, where are we going? As we got older, we knew like this wasn't where we were intended to go. And then my dad would inevitably reply, oh, we're going to take a little Vista drive. That's what he called it. He called these detours vista drives because the idea was that you'd get to a place where you'd see some kind of a vista, some kind of a, of a pretty sight or something that was different. And the thing with the vista drive was you never knew how long it would take and you didn't know what you would see. Sometimes the vista drives paid off. Sometimes we thought we were going to get arrested because of where we ended up. And so we take these drives, these little, these little detours. I actually remember one of the last ones that we had gone on. It was actually my family, Hannah, the girls and I, my dad and my mom, we had actually um, gone on a vacation together. My dad and I were asked to speak at a camp up in Wyoming. And so we said, let's tag on a vacation at the end of it. And, and since he had the rental car, one day uh, we were coming back from dinner to the hotel. We we're in this town in Wyoming. And my dad says, hey, let's, let's just go up this road over here. And I, as an adult now, just kind of smiled to myself. I knew what it was all, all about. But I more or less smiled to myself because I knew that my daughters were now going to be tortured. And so, <clears throat> so we took one of these 
Vista drives, and I'm glad that we did, because when we took the drive, we went on this road, and we came to this river and kind of this marshy area, and the entire time we were in Wyoming and Montana, the only thing that we wanted to see was a moose. Like, they were just, you know, you don't have those around here, and so, uh, so we went up, and sure enough, the sun was setting, we come to this little turnout, we see this marshy area, and my dad's like, oh, this looks like great moose land, and I'm like, all right, so we stop. And a mom moose and a baby calf come out and they go to the water and they enjoy their drink and we're just like, now that was a Vista Drive. That was a detour that was worth taking. I don't know if my girls appreciate it or not, I did. So I share that with you because as we return this morning to the book of Ephesians, we come to this section in Ephesians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul is going to take us as a church on a little bit of a vista drive. He's going to take a detour from what you think he's about to say. And this detour is going to last for about 12 verses before he actually comes back to his main thought. But, but I share this illustration with you because I want you to know that this is what's happening in the text. Paul is going to start a train of thought in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And he's going to break away from it, and he's going to pick it up all the way back in verse 14. Now, unlike my father's Vista Drives and Detours, okay, this right here is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. And so when you read Paul beginning a train of thought and then breaking away from it, and it doesn't seem like, you know, he knows where he's going, the reality is God perfectly intended the detour that Paul takes. Are you tracking with me on that? And so I don't want you to view this. When I talk about Paul taking a detour, it's not as though God didn't know where he was going or why he was going on this detour. So, so let me get to the text with you. Open up in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats underneath in front of you. We'd love for you to have that. That's our gift to you. You can take it home if you do not have one. But here's how the text begins. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So, so here's where in verse 2 we, we see the detour. Paul starts this train of thought. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay, that's the beginning of a thought that Paul's not going to return to until you get down to verse 14. Why do we know that? Because look at how verse 14 starts. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And so he's using in verse 14 the exact same words he uses here in verse 1. What Paul is doing here is chapter 3 begins with that statement for this reason. Whenever you see that in the scripture, it's intended to let you know that what he's about to say is connected to what he has said previously. And those words for this reason are always used to connect what has been said before with what's about to come, but to say, here's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. It's because of what I've just said. Here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's because of, just, of what I've just said. But right after Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, he says in verse 2 these, this strange phrase. He says, oh, wait a second, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for, for you. So Paul wants to get into what we ultimately know is this prayer for the Ephesians. 
But in verse 1, he shares some news about himself that he realizes, oh, wait a second. I got to pause here. I got to address something. Do you see how in the text he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus for what? For, for your sake. For, for their sake, he's a prisoner. And the reason why Paul pauses his train of thought, the reason why he doesn't jump into the prayer that we're going to see next week, starting in verse 14, is because when he mentions that he's a prisoner, he realizes that the people that he's writing to might be all of a sudden a little troubled for him, might be a little worried about this information. In fact, if you go all the way down to verse 13, we know that's exactly his concern. Paul's a pastor at heart. The people that he's writing to in Ephesus, that was a church that he planted. He spent almost three years with these people that he's writing this letter to. And when he brings up his imprisonment to them, and, and this isn't going to be the last time, he's going to reference it two more times. When he brings up his imprisonment, he realizes, I believe, that, that for those who care about him in Ephesus, they might be a little bit troubled by this news. Because at this time, we know that Paul, he is, he's a prisoner in Rome. Did you know that? This is taking place in about AD 62. Paul's a prisoner in Rome, and he's a prisoner in Rome because he'd been preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem didn't like what he was saying, and they kind of stirred up the crowds against Paul, and the Romans got involved, and then Paul appeals to the emperor. He's like, listen, I've been unjustly you know, charged here, and so I want to talk to the emperor about this. And so he's going to actually go to Rome, and he's going to actually then be confronted before Nero, where he'll eventually lose his life. So, so right now where he's writing this, he's in a Roman prison. I wanted to show you a picture here. This is a little bit of just an idea of what a prison in Rome would have kind of looked like. You can see this one is actually in Rome at the time. Now, we don't know the exact details, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a place that you'd want to stay, right? This wasn't the Airbnb you'd want to stay at, okay? And so they know that he's here. And then there are some of the people who are actually in Ephesus that Paul realizes when he mentions that he's a prisoner for their sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. He realizes, you know what? Some of these people, they don't even know me. It's been a number of years since he's been to Ephesus. And so those that are there, they would have cared about him being in prison. But then there were those there that are hearing about this guy, Paul, and the fact that he's in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. And, he's, and they could be wondering, well, what's this guy, Paul, all about? So what does Paul do? Well, starting in verse 2, Paul says, wait a second. Before I tell you how I am praying for you based upon everything that I've shared with you already, I need to let you know a little bit about myself. We need to take this detour and church, as we're going to take this detour now, really fast over these next few moments, we're going to see Paul give us some insights into his life, into his ministry, that I am so grateful he takes this detour. I'm so grateful that inspired by God, he says what he says here because of how it can minister to our hearts and minds. So let's look at the detour. Let's look at the first thing he says in verse two. He writes to these people, some who know him, some who don't, but are, who are all troubled about his being in prison. And he says, assuming that you have heard of the, look at this word, stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. The very first thing that Paul wants them to know on this detour is that he was given, this guy Paul, who's writing this letter, he was given, as it says here, a stewardship of God's grace. Literally, what he's saying here is that by the grace of God, wholly undeserved by me, God gave me something. God gave me something. And if you notice, as he says in verse two, I was given this thing by God. I was entrusted with this thing for you, church in Ephesus, for, for you, church, 
God gave me something for your benefit. And what was it that he gave to Paul? Look at verse 3. He goes on. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. So the thing that was given to Paul was the revelation of a mystery. Now, the way that they used mystery back in Paul's day is just a little bit different than our day. What he's referring to here is that a mystery back then was something that was known, but a secret to many. And so Paul is saying, is like, there's this information, there was this knowledge that existed, but had been hidden. And now this mystery, this knowledge, which had been hidden, has been revealed to me. And look at what verse 4 says. He gives us a little bit more insight into what this hidden knowledge was. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of who? Christ. So, so whatever this knowledge that Paul was given for the benefit of the Gentiles ultimately involves Jesus Christ. And then he says something super crazy. Look at verse 5. This mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery of which Paul has now been made aware, which is for the benefit of the church, is something that up until this point in all of human history had not been on full display. In a few weeks, actually, in mid-February, we're going to be taking a trip to Israel with some of you from the church. And when you go to a place like Israel or you go to a place like Greece, there's something that's so fascinating. You drive around the countryside and you see these mounds of dirt. You see these very large things. They look like hills, but they call them tells. They're, they're, they're not actually just mounds of dirt. Those mounds of dirt exist because you know what? If you were to dig into those mounds of dirt... You would find things. You would find cities. You would find villages that over time, the, the dirt and the debris has accumulated and so they have been covered. The reality is that the villages are there. The cities are there. The archaeological sites, they are there. It's just the fact that they have not yet been exposed. And Paul's saying, now is the time. God has given to me something to make known to you, to, to take what was covered and put it on full display. And so, my goodness, what is this thing, Paul? What is this mystery? Well, fortunately for us, he tells us. Did you see it in verse 6? Here it is. Here's the mystery. He says, literally, this is the mystery that the Gentiles, who are Gentiles? They're, they're non-Jews. Our fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Church, what was this ministry? What is this, this mystery that Paul was entrusted with? It was first and foremost a message. When you are looking at the detour that Paul takes, the first thing he tells us is that he was given a message. He was given a message, a message that was for the sake of, for the benefit of the Gentiles and ultimately for all people. And what we see in this verse is exactly the details of what had been previously hidden, but was now made known. And so what was this mystery? Let's consider it for, for a second here, church. 
What is it that Paul says comprises this in verse 6? Well, at first glance, and here's something that church I want us to be abundantly clear on. At first glance, you might think that the message he was given, even based upon what he said in chapter 2, that the message that had been hidden but was now revealed was that if you're a Gentile, God can save you. Some people think at first glance that what Paul says is the thing that was hidden was that God doesn't just save Jews, but God also saves Gentiles. But guess what? That hadn't been hidden. From the earliest pages of the scriptures, we know that all the way back to Adam and Eve, God said that because of sin that had entered in the world, one day he would send someone who would make things right. When he came to Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12, he said to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be the first of the Jewish people, but through you, all peoples of the earth will be what? Blessed. All peoples means, guess what? All peoples. So God had already revealed that Jews and Gentiles can both be saved. But here's what was new. Here was the thing that was hidden that was now revealed. You see, up to this point, all that the people of God knew, all that had been revealed was that in order for a Gentile, like myself, for like the majority of us here, in order to be brought into God's family, in order for God to save them, you had to first become an Israelite. You had to become part of the covenant community. And you did that through the act of circumcision. You did that then through following the rituals and the ceremonies of the people of God as had been established. And you participated in the community. In order for God to save and redeem, you became a part of this community. That was what was understood. Are you following me? So what was new? What was new is what Paul has just said in chapter 2. The new thing that Paul revealed was that this approach no longer was necessary. Yes, Gentiles could be saved. Yes, Jews could be saved. But what Paul revealed is that you were saved through Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he says that Christ broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Christ is the perfect sacrificial lamb. Christ is the one who atones for our sins. Everything was pointing forward to Christ. And so you don't need anything but Christ to be redeemed and to be brought into God's family. This was the glorious message. You didn't have to become a Jew. You didn't have to become an Israelite in order to become a son or daughter of God. It was through Christ and Christ alone. He says, I have made the two people one new man. Church, I'm telling you, we're 2,000 years after this was written, and so this doesn't necessarily seem like that big of a deal, but back then, that was huge. It's old news to us. It was new news to them. The fact that you just needed Jesus and his blood to atone for your sins, this was marvelous. And look at how he describes it. Lest people don't understand his message, What Paul is saying here in verse 6 is that the message that he was given was that through Jesus Christ, all people, regardless of your background, can become God's people. This was the new message, that it was through Christ that you became part of God's family. And look at how he summarizes it. Do you see it there in verse 6? The first thing he says is that through Jesus Christ, we are fellow heirs fellow heirs he's like here's the news here's the new news that gentiles are fellow heirs fellow heirs with who church with the jews with the the god's people in the past he says 
what he's coming here and he's saying is this. To be a fellow heir means that Jews and Gentiles, all people, regardless of background, through Jesus Christ, are equally sons and daughters of God. Now, I want you to sit on that for a minute. Hear this message. Hear what Paul's proclaiming through Jesus Christ. By coming to God through Jesus in faith in him, we become equal heirs, which means we are equally sons and daughters. Already, Paul's talked to the Ephesians about this crazy inheritance that we have being in God's family. But here he gets really specific and he says, listen, your family lineage, your background, none of that matters when it comes to being a part of God's family. There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. What comes to us through God the Father is all the same. Every person who is saved through Jesus Christ is an equal heir. One of the revelatory things that Paul is getting at here is this. To be a fellow heir means that we have an equal share. But you know why that's revelatory in Paul's day, in Jesus' day? I just want to see how smart our church family is because I, I believe you're pretty smart. In Paul's day, who got the inheritance? in a family when the parents died. Who got the inheritance? Firstborn. The firstborn, specifically the firstborn son. Mm. Now Jesus comes in and he says, Paul comes here and he says that we are what? Fellow heirs. Do you know that every single one of you here in Christ Jesus is considered a firstborn? There's no divided inheritance here. There's no hierarchy of who gets what in God's family through Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because there's only one firstborn son. And his name is Jesus. And when God the Father looks at us, he looks at us through his son, Jesus. And when he brings us into his family, he brings us in as firstborns through Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, listen, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. We are fellow heirs, which as way of application, church, if this is true, and it is, why would we ever compare ourselves to one another? Why would we ever compare ourselves to one another? In fact, Jesus told a parable in Matthew 20, 16, to, to kind of, verses 1 through 16, to kind of tee this up. He told the parable about how a man went out and hired workers at different portions of the day and then gave them all the same thing at the end of the day. Do you know this parable? Okay, so, so, so why did he give that parable? Because what he's showing us is like, we're all equal here in God's family. And none of us can take more credit. You can't say it's like, well, I came from a Christian family and so I'm a little bit closer to God than you are. Or I have Jewish heritage and so that makes me more special in, eyes, in God's eyes. No, we are one simple thing, fellow heirs. Isn't that beautiful? And, and so how God looks at you is no different than how he looks at anyone else because we are all firstborn sons and daughters. I just think that's, that's beautiful. And it also means that my status will never change because you know who makes me his son and his daughter? God does. God does. But then he says this. He says there's something else. He goes a little bit deeper. He says, through the work of Jesus Christ, we're also members of the same body. We're not just fellow heirs. We're not just brothers and sisters. Paul probes. He goes a little bit deeper. He says that we are members of the same body, which means that we are all spiritually connected to one another. 
It's not just that you're a brother or a sister and we're equal as far as firstborn. We are spiritually connected. He's going to build upon this when he writes to the church in Ephesus and when he writes to the church in Rome. When he says that we are fellow members of the same body, we're made of the same spiritual DNA. We are vastly more connected to one another than we could ever imagine. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, he's going to say, because we're all part of the same body, we need one another. And so a Jew back then couldn't look at a Gentile and say, okay, we're fellow heirs, but you're just adopted. I'm a real fill-in-the-blank. No, you, could, you couldn't say that. Paul's saying, we're made of the same stuff. We're made of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we are intimately connected to one another. See, this changes our mindset, because the person sitting next to you right now, you know, you could say, ah, oh, that's my brother, that, that's my sister, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he says, if one member of the body suffers, what? All suffer. If one rejoices, what? All rejoice. Man, we only get a picture of it now. Our connectedness to one another one day is going to be on full display when we're in heaven. And our hope and our prayer is that we take Paul's words to heart and say, you know what? We should really live as though we matter to one another now because one day we're going to see it in its fullness when we get to heaven. And that's what he's saying. And the reason why he says all of this is because of what he says here last. He says we are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. We're all partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. You know what he's talking about right here? He's saying we're all redeemed the same way. We all become a part of God's family the exact same way. Way. It's why we're connected to one another. It's why we're fellow heirs. It's not that you got in one way and you got in another way. This past week, I went down to the border. I'm going to be doing some traveling this year. And, and I decided, you know what? I want to get a TSA pre-check and some global entry. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because, I don't know if you've noticed when you go to an airport and you go through security, there's, there's these two lines. Have you seen these two lines, right? You, you see one line for the plebs, and it's, the, it's just the regular, you know. Some of you know what that word means, right? So it's just for the, the hoi polloi, the regular people, and they got to back up and everything. And then you see these people walking through, and it says TSA pre-check line. And you watch them, and they just walk past you, and they're going through security. They're like, I'm just going to go there. Now, at the end of the day, we all end up in the same place, don't we? We all end up in the same terminal, and then if you're flying on Southwest, it's a cattle call, and you all just stand there waiting to get on, right? But, so we all end up in the same place, but man, if you have TSA pre-check, you can get right through that line and you don't have any hassle. When it says that we're partakers of the same promise of Christ Jesus, he's saying, listen, there's no TSA pre-check. <laughs> we all get in the same way. We all get in only through the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ. Church, God gave Paul a message. The message is this wonderful message that through Jesus Christ, all people, regardless of distinction, can become God's people. Isn't that glorious news? Isn't that glorious news? Because he described earlier in chapter 2 that if you're not God's people, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are cut off from God. You are without hope in the world. But if there's a gospel message that a sinner like you and a sinner like me can be saved and redeemed and brought into God's glorious family through Jesus Christ. What beautiful news is that? And that's what Paul says. He was given this message. He, it says, was revealed this message so that you and I might benefit. But then he goes on from there and he says, I got one more stop on my detour. 
In verse 7, he comes and he says, it's not just that I was given a message by God. He uses these same words in verse 7 to communicate that he was given something else. Look at it, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Just as God graciously revealed to Paul this message of the gospel where Jews and Gentiles are brought in through Jesus Christ, so too he comes here and he says, I was also given a mission. I was given a ministry. A ministry is an activity that one engages in. And so Paul was given by God's grace, not because Paul was wonderful, not because Paul was better than somebody else, because God was gracious to Paul. He gave him this mission. And what was the mission that he gave him? Just as he told us what the mystery was, he tells us what the mission was. Verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What was the grace? What was the mission you were given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The mission Paul was given was to take the message, to proclaim the gospel message to all people. The message was for all people, that through Jesus Christ, all people can become a part of God's family. And so the mission Paul was given was to take that message and to make it known. To make it known. And when Paul received that mission, look at what he says about himself. He recognized immediately how glorious that message was. How privileged anyone would be to be a part of God's eternal plan in making that message known. And he calls himself in verse 8, he says, I'm the very least of the saints. I didn't deserve, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, to be given this message or to be given this mission. And Paul here, he's not being falsely humble. I mean, go back when we first started our series in Ephesians, you would know that Paul was a man who before he came to faith in Jesus Christ, absolutely hated Jesus. And he hated anyone who followed Jesus. And it wasn't just how he felt, it's what he did. He was complicit in the murder of Christians, the torture of Christians, the imprisonment of Christians. Paul, the guy who's writing these words, was complicit in breaking up families. And now, God came to Paul, who was this kind of a man, saved him and redeemed him and said, although this is who you were and this is what you did, I am going to give to you this message and this mission, and to go out and to proclaim who I am. And I want you to go back in your mind for a minute and actually picture Paul for a minute. When, when Jesus Christ sent him out on this mission, think about him for just a second. He would return to the villages and towns. He would walk the roads that he had once walked except when he walked those roads in the past, it wasn't to tell people that they could be saved and redeemed and delivered by God the Father. Earlier in his life, when he had walked those roads, he had done it to persecute and to harm. 
And so here he is now realizing that this glorious mission, this glorious message was, was given to him by God to go and to take to others. It's, it's because of his background that I think that he writes what he writes here in verse 8. Look again at it. He says, to me, though I'm the very least of the, all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of who? Christ. Church, Paul, I believed, knew better than anyone how deep and precious and literally unfathomable it was to know Jesus Christ. All that you receive because of him. He uses this word that it was his privilege to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This word in the Greek is literally a word that's only found in the Bible and in biblical commentaries around that time period. It's a word that almost Paul seems to be making up to, to try and describe something that's indescribable. It's a word that you would use to say, like, listen, if you're going to catalog something, if you have categories for being able to describe something's worth or value, he says it exceeds those categories. It was in the year 1922 that the famous tomb of King Tut was discovered. You know the story. Henry Carter discovered the, the tomb of King Tut. I want to show you this tomb here for, for a moment. When they broke through into the tomb of King Tut, they had no idea what they were about to find. But when the light shone in the room, this is what they saw, the, the riches of, of Egypt. And as Carter went through and he made it into that tomb, you can see in the other picture that they started taking things out of the tomb. And you know what they did with every single thing that was in that tomb? They cataloged it. They marked it. All these, in, these invaluable items, they made sure that they knew exactly what they were. And they cataloged them. And they pulled everything out of the tomb until eventually there was nothing left inside the tomb. All the riches that King Tut had put in his tomb were cataloged and taken away. No more riches in the tomb. All right? Now I want you to think about that. What Paul is saying is that in Jesus Christ... The riches never end. They can't even be cataloged. There are so many that if you keep going to the treasure of Jesus Christ, you will never find it wanting. In fact, listen to me. Some of the treasures that we have in Jesus Christ that are, that are just with, without number are his love, his forgiveness, his grace, his goodness, his kindness, we have a new life in Christ. Church, think about this. The unsearchable riches of Christ, if they are unsearchable and they are, it means that you will never lack for love. You will never lack for forgiveness. You will never lack for his goodness. You will never lack for power. You will never lack in anything in regards to your relationship with God the Father because the riches of Christ are what? Unsearchable. And Paul comes and says, I know exactly what it is like. Church, we have unsearchable riches in Christ. To have Christ is to have all that we need and more. To be a Christian is to be someone who is never lacking. I heard a pastor recently from long ago say this. He said, I no longer ask people if they are Christians. I thought, well, that's interesting. It's like, I don't ask people anymore if they're Christians. Instead, I ask them, does Christ live in you? That's a great distinction, isn't it? It's not, are you a Christian? 
It's does Christ live in you? Because if we are truly those who have received Christ by faith, then Christ is in us. And those unsearchable riches of Christ come to us every single day. Paul was given a message. Paul was given a mission. And so as we take this detour with him, we see one final thing. And what we see is this. Paul says that this message, this mission, as glorious and gracious and unbelievable as it is, is our message and our mission. The blessing of getting to share this message, the blessing of knowing this message for ourselves and being able to communicate to others, Paul says, is our message and our mission. Let me read all the way through verse 12. He starts in verse 8. To me, though on the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, listen to this, underline this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This, the manifold wisdom of God being displayed in the church, was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. What does all that mean? What Paul is communicating to us is that he has been given this message, as he's been given this mission, what he's saying first and foremost in these verses is that we are the church, the culmination of God's redemption plan. Let me just say that one more time. The church, as it exists today in the world, from the time of Christ till now, until Christ returns, is the culmination of God's redemption plan. There's no more mystery to be revealed. There's no other place in which salvation is made known to the world other than the plan that has been revealed through Jesus Christ, that all people, through Jesus Christ, can become a part of God's family. Today, you are sitting in a building with other people, and this constitutes, not the building, but this gathering, we constitute the church, and, and it is the church, you and I, because of our salvation, not individualistically, although that's important, but collectively, God is coming to us in his word and he's saying, did you know that you're part of something in the church, which is the final and full display of everything that God was working forwards towards since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. How incredible is this? We stand on this side of history where you are a part of God bringing to the forefront for full display the plan that he had from the moment he said to Abraham, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We're the culmination of this plan. And not only is that, we are the church, listen to this, God's instrument for making his redemption plan known. Not only is Paul saying in these verses that we're the culmination, the revelation of his redemption plan, but we are the instrument. Look at what he says there. So that through the church, through us, Jew and Gentile being united through the gospel, the wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose 
that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is the means by which we are the means by which the world is able to see and to know that sinners can be saved, that the lost can be redeemed, that the fatherless can have a heavenly father through Jesus Christ. We make that known to the world. No organization does it. The church does it. That's what's being said here. So we are seeing just exactly how precious and how important the church is. Your individual salvation, my individual salvation, that's significant. But the scriptures go out of their way to tell you you're part of something bigger. You are part of God making one new man out of two. And so we need one another. Church, this is why our mission is so simple as a church. We exist our mission says it, it's all over the place. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is us. We are God's instrument in the world to make his plan of redemption known. You're bigger, you're part of something so much bigger than just yourself. When God saves you and redeems you, you're brought into his family, but you are also brought into this thing, his body, the church, which shows off to the world how the lost can be redeemed. And so he takes this detour and he shares this, these things about himself because it all started with the fact that he said, I'm in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. And rather than that church being something that should be depressing to the hearers in Ephesus or it should be depressing to us even here today, he said, no, 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 it's all good actually because although I'm in prison, my being in prison is because I was engaging in the mission by proclaiming the message. And look at how he closes this entire section. He says, so I ask you then, because I've been given this message and I've been given this mission and you've been given this message and you've been given this mission not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your what? Glory. This is, it's all good. Yeah, it stinks. I'm in prison. It's not fun. And he's going to die because of it. But he says, don't lose heart because we're part of God's unfolding plan to make redemption known. And he says, it's for your glory. So church, I close with this. As he said to the church in Ephesus, so I say to you, you today are part of God's glorious redemption plan. And so come what may in your life, when you can see the message and the mission that you've been given, just like Paul, don't ever lose heart. Though the tides of time and the, the culture around us might seem to be doing those things which, which don't seem to, to lift us up but to tear us down, ultimately, you're a part of this redemption plan of God to carry the message to the lost and the unsearchable riches of Christ will forever be yours. So do not lose heart. Let's pray together. Father, We often need in our lives what only you can give, and that is a bigger picture of what's going on. We can get so self-centered and, and self-focused, and just by the nature of our own lives, Lord, I, I even can be drawn into myself, into, into the immediacy of things, and lose sight of the bigger picture, which is that you have worked in Jesus Christ salvation. And that for all of us, we can be restored to right relationship. We can be made your sons and daughters because of what Christ has done. 
And that this is a message that, Lord, is not just one that we keep to ourselves, but is one that the world needs and that we, you invite us, you call us to be a part of sharing with others. So first, Lord, help us as your people realize that we're part of something bigger every single day, that we would never lose heart, that when, Lord, it seems that redemption and change is impossible, all we have to do is look to what you've done in our lives and the lives of the members of this church family, we could say, no, 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 you are doing a marvelous work here. And Lord, may that spur us on to share that good news with others. To the praise and glory of your name, we ask it. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.